0: I hope you'll join me this morning in opening to the book of Habakkuk, as the Hebrews say. And we're going to look at a few steps that might change our lives this morning. If you would, join me at the throne of God's grace, because your time here will be wasted, my time here will be futile, unless God the Holy Spirit steps in and makes a difference in our lives. So let's just pray that He'll do that right now as we get ourselves started. Father, once again, I want to thank you so much for this church. Thank you for the leadership. Thank you for Nick, for Mark, for all the staff. Thank you, Father, for the group that just led us in singing, so vibrant, so power-packed. and Yet, Father, as we learn in the book of Habakkuk in, in so many stories that we read in the Scripture, It's easy to sing in the light, but sometimes we fail to sing in the dark. I pray that you will build into us this morning the power to never doubt in the dark what we believe in the light, and I pray that we can praise you with just as much vigor when times are difficult and life is painful and our hearts are wounded. So open our eyes this morning through our study of this marvelous man, his amazing ministry, and the message that he gives to us that is so relevant to our time. And we thank you in advance for all that you will do that will not only touch our lives, but touch eternity. For this we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As those of you who have been with us realize Habakkuk was looking at a nation in decline, a nation that was being destroyed by corruption from within. No nation ever falls from a power without until that nation has destroyed itself within. It is impossible to defeat a nation that is strong in soul and strong in spirit. And the one thing that will hold a nation together is when that nation lives up to the ideal that was once expressed in the words, one nation under God. And so as Habakkuk watched the decline of his nation, he cried out to God. He did what we all do in times of trouble and difficulty. He began to pour out his heart in prayer and ask God, when are you going to judge the evil in our nation? And God came back to him and said, I'm glad you asked because I'm about to raise up the Chaldeans and I'm going to bring the Chaldeans in and they are implacable, they are violent, they are brutal, and they're going to destroy your nation. And Habakkuk, in essence, answered, that's not really what I wanted. But what we've learned as we've worked our way through Habakkuk is that when we pray, we expect prayer to change things what God wants is for prayer to change us. And as Habakkuk continues to pour out his heart and his soul to God and has this dialogue going on where he offers God his complaint and God responds with an answer, we see the man changing. And there's actually seven steps that Habakkuk goes through as you work your way through the book to where he's a different man at the end of the book than he was in the beginning. He starts out fearful. He ends up faithful. He starts out discouraged and defeated. He ends up victorious. And the lesson that he learns and the lesson that we all have to learn is that we operate as believers in Jesus Christ in two realms. We live in the natural realm and it's too easy for us to get our eyes fixed only on that which we can see. And what God shows Habakkuk is you have to open your spiritual eyes to see beyond the veil and realize what I'm doing behind the scenes. And that's really what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see Habakkuk in chapter three going through that transformation where he's not just looking at what he can see, what he can touch, what he can feel. He begins to look at a vision that God gives him of his triumphant and mighty power. And so I hope you'll join me in the third chapter of Habakkuk. And those of you that have the notes, you'll notice the notes are very, very sparse. And I did this for a reason because I wanted to highlight the seven steps or the seven stages of his spiritual journey from fear to faith. And I'm not going to spend time going back through all of those things, but as we get into the third chapter, we really begin to see the transformation taking place in his life, and so that's where I really want to begin. As we look in Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk begins to sing a song. You can really tell when someone has either lost their mind or really gotten in line with God's purpose. When the days are dark, when the times are difficult, when life hurts and they start singing. I remember one time when my wife and I were going through a particular dark time in our life, and we've been through several where we were involved in our ministry in Australia and it seemed we were being attacked from every side. And it just seemed like as soon as we adjusted to one assault of the enemy, we would get hit with another broadside. And when we thought the attack was coming from this direction, it hit us from behind. And I remember I was uh, in the home that we were living in there and my wife came to me and she just had a white face and she said, you're not going to believe what happened now. I mean, it had been one series after another, after another of terrible things. And I looked at her face and I could tell she is just almost crushed under the weight of this. And she told me what had just happened. It was like the biggest blow yet. And I stood there a minute and I threw my head back and I started laughing. And she got this scared look on her face. Like, you know, it's pushed him over the edge. It's too much for him to handle. And I'm just having this great belly laugh, and she's looking at me kind of like, what do I do with him? Take him to an institution or what? (laughs) And she said, why are you laughing? And I said, because it's so obvious with... What's happened now that this is an attack from Satan and therefore it's not our battle to fight. We don't have to deal with all this. All we've got to do is put it in God's hand. I went and I got a hymn book and we sat down on the couch and I opened the hymn book and I said, let's sing a song and we started singing hymns and we just kept singing and singing and singing and it was like the dark clouds just vanished and it was very shortly after that, the victory was ours. That was an amazing time, a very unique time in our life. And so Habakkuk, with the weight of the world on his shoulder, with his care and concern for his nation, for his family, for his friends, for his loved one, for the saints that were scattered across the land, knowing that there was an army bearing down on them from the north, begins begins to sing. And this is where we find ourselves in Habakkuk chapter 3, if you'll join me. And I would encourage you, if you have the notes, go back over those notes and follow those seven steps because what we're going to see this morning in our two sessions, we've seen the seven steps Habakkuk takes, we're going to see seven steps Moses took, and then the last session is going to be the seven steps you and I need to take, right? So here we are, a prayer of Habakkuk, Habakkuk the prophet, on Shagayanath. Now, I know that you probably waited for this morning to just see Shagayanath. I'm sure that really excites you. What in the world is Shagayanath? Well, Shagayanath is actually a word that refers to a painful lament. It's a painful song. It's a, uh, the, the word actually comes from Shagah, which means to stagger from drinking too much. Except that Habakkuk is not drunk on wine. Habakkuk is drunk on the power of God. And so it's almost as if he's singing. There are many scholars that believe that he must have been one of the Levites uh, in the choir that wrote the songs that they would sing. And I want you to think about this carefully. If you could imagine the United States of America this morning with an enemy closing in on us, and it could be happening. Have you ever heard so much talk about nuclear war? I always tell people if a nuke hits, I just hope I'm right there at ground zero. That would be the easiest way to go out. You'd have a hot flash and you'd be gone. And people are fearful. And I think it's time we start to sing. And we need to get drunk on the power of God. And we need to realize that He has everything in control because as we're on this earth living in this physical realm, there's a spiritual realm beyond. We live in the visible. We need to lay hold of the invisible. We live in the natural, the material. We need to lay hold of the supernatural. And so he begins to sing this song that is a song of lament. It's a song of pain. It's a song of sorrow, but it's also a song of victory. And as he begins to sing, and I hope that God will give me the ability to somehow import into your mind what this chapter conveys, because it is so supernatural that it's just unbelievable, as he begins to sing his song and probably he's sitting there with his pen writing and he says oh lord i have heard your speech and i am terrified oh lord he says revive your work in the midst of the years in other words in the middle of all that is going on revive your work the word revive is haya and it's interesting because it comes from not only the word to give life, but it's the root of Yahweh, Jehovah. Give life, revive your work. And what is God's work? Well, we know God's work is redemption. What is always foremost in His mind? What is the central focus of all of human history? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And as the Lord Jesus Christ going through the utmost agony that any human soul ever experienced, it wasn't, my friends, just the cross that he endured. It was the penalty of the sins of the entire world. And when he went to the cross and as your sins passed through his soul, he thought of you personally. He had you personally in mind. And when he said, it is finished, the victory was won. And so here Habakkuk wants the redemptive work to be revived, to give it life. And he says, in your wrath, remember mercy. And then suddenly God opens his eyes and he begins to catch a vision. And as I told the folks in our first class, this whole book was given to Habakkuk in a vision. When he saw the corruption of his nation, God gave it to him to supernaturally see the corruption going on in the nation. When he spoke about the Chaldeans coming in, God gave him the vision of what it would look like when those massed armies began to close on them. He was seeing all this as if he was watching it on a screen. And then he writes it down. So somehow I have to try to take what he wrote down and put it before you so that you see it in a vision. And I'm not going to try to go into a lot of detail. I want this to be kind of a hard and fast punch. I told Fassel I had a one-two punch this morning. This is the number one punch. Here it comes. Imagine praying like Habakkuk, praying for mercy, praying for redemption, praying for God's grace on the nation, and suddenly God opens his eyes, and what does he see? Verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Try to picture in your mind this vision of God moving across the land. It says, His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Just imagine the shouts going up from His people at every corner of the world. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hands and there was power. His power was hidden. Before Him went pestilence and fever followed at His feet. What He's actually seeing here is a vision of what happened when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. I want to suggest something to you. Just the Wednesday before we left to come here, I had the opportunity to teach at our home church in Prescott. And I was asked to teach on Exodus 34, and I would encourage you maybe to go and read Exodus 34 because Moses goes up the mountain after he had broken the tables of the law, and God calls him up the mountain, and he goes up with two more tables, and God writes on the tables the law. That wouldn't take very long. As I reminded the people there, God wrote the law with His finger in the stone, and there was a second time God wrote with His finger, and that was when the Lord Jesus Christ stooped down in John chapter 8 as the question of the law came up once again with a woman that was caught in the act of adultery thrown on the floor in front of Him, and He stooped down and He began to write with His finger. The same God who wrote the law wrote the words, we don't know what they were, but they conveyed The religious leaders and they all walked out. So Moses goes up Mount Sinai and God writes the words of the law again, and it takes him 40 days and 40 nights. Moses is there, we're told, without eating, without drinking, probably without sleeping. And for 40 days, something is going on that so totally captivates the mind and the heart and the soul of Moses that when he walks down the mountain and starts talking to people, just the reflected glory of God terrifies them. Could I suggest to you that what God showed Habakkuk is what Moses saw for 40 days and 40 nights? Moses saw what God was going to do as he delivered his people out of Egypt, led them across the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness, took them across the River Jordan, took them into the land, and defeated their enemies. And I think we have here a little glimpse of what he may have seen. Imagine God in verse 6 coming and standing and measuring the earth simply looking at a nation and he startles them. The everlasting mountains were scattered and the perpetual hills bowed down. His ways are everlasting. Habakkuk says, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian clear down into the Arabian Peninsula. He sees the people terrified at the presence of God. Verse 8, he says, "O Lord, he asked the question, Were you displeased with the rivers? Were you displeased with the Nile when you turned it to blood? Was your wrath against the sea when you parted the sea for your people to go through? You rode on your chariots. They were chariots of salvation. I mean, even the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston couldn't picture this. Your bow was made ready, and oaths were sworn over your arrows. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. They overflowed with water passing by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. You'll remember this from Joshua chapter 10. And the light of your arrows went out in the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. But catch verse 13. This is the sixth step along the way for Habakkuk. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation with your anointed. 500 and 85, 90 years before the Lord Jesus Christ walked on the face of this earth, the prophet Habakkuk realized that he was coming and that he was coming in victory and that he was coming for salvation. He says, you struck the head of the house. Literally, this is talking about the... uh, crossbeam of the house or the cornerstone of the house. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare the foundation to the neck. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret, but you walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of the great waters. Now there's three things I left out in this great vision of God. And unfortunately, we tend to leave little details out in our study of Scripture. And the one thing we learn is that little things have magnificent importance. Did any of you catch what I left out in my reading of this section? There's a word that occurs three times. What is it? Sila. What is sila? Sila means pause, meditate and rest. Do you know what God is saying to you and I today as we look at a world in turmoil and we see on every hand corruption and perversion. We see people being abused, we see plunder at every hand. We see that, as Habakkuk said earlier, there's no longer any justice in the land. The innocent are prosecuted. The guilty are set free. That's the land we live in today. We have people who are in positions of leadership supposedly to serve us who serve only themselves. You get a term of Congress, you're rich for life, you can go in worth 500,000 bucks and come out being worth 10, 15, 20, million dollars and the poor people of the land are being pressed harder and harder and harder you know what God's saying to us Don't just look at the visible, look beyond the veil, look to the invisible, and realize that God is on the move, and realize that He sees the injustice, and realize that He is a holy and a righteous and a just God, and His patience doesn't mean His indifference. His patience means, as Peter tells us, that God is not unjust, as men often count unjustness regarding His promises. He is long-suffering to you, not willing that any should perish. And that's the reason for his delay. But his delay will not last forever. And so what does he say? Rest. Look beyond the veil. Catch a glimpse of God on the move. See in the earthquakes. See in the floods. See in the droughts. The prince of his feet and his movement across the earth and his shaking of the nations because this is not a battle between you and I and evil. This is a battle between the God of heaven and the devil of hell and the devil doesn't stand a chance. As I told the folks earlier, when Satan challenged God to a contest in Isaiah 14, when he said, I will raise myself, I will exalt myself, I will sit on the mountain of the north, I will be like God, and God laughed. Then he said, tell you what, Lucifer, I'll fight you with both hands and both feet tied. Lucifer said, I'll take that challenge. And so history began to unfold until the time when God stretched out His hands and put His feet together and got nailed to a cross and defeated the enemy. You and I are not living in defeat, we're living in victory. Now here's what I want us to understand. As he catches this vision of God winning the victory in the time of the Exodus, what was Moses doing? Because this is the important thing you and I have to capture. In that invisible realm, God reigns, God rules, and God moves. In the visible realm, God works through His people. He wants to include us in His plan. He wants to use us to accomplish His purpose. But we have to be moving in unison. And we can't do that if we're terrified. We can't do that if we're downcast. And we can't do that if we're depressed. We have to have the assurance that He is going to win the victory. So if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, I will show you the seven steps Moses took as God was moving across the earth, causing the rivers to dry up, passing through the sea, shaking the mountains, defeating the nations. Let's see what Moses was doing at the same time. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, we know as the by faith chapter. Uh, we know Hebrews 11 as the heroes of faith. I like what one Bible scholar said. It's not so much the heroes of faith as rogues gallery. Because for whatever reason, the author of Hebrews was led by the Spirit of God to choose not the best examples of people in the Old Testament, but to choose the examples of people who were surrounded with weakness and who often failed and who often fell. Why? Because he wants us to know they were like us. They faced their problems, their difficulties, their inadequacies, and they were used to accomplish magnificent things. And so here we have Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're told in verse 1 that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We're told in verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe, number one, that he exists, and number two, he needs to believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him have to believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. If you manage to stay with us for the second session, we'll talk about the first and the second rest because this is where you and I need to move. Drop with me down to verse 23. By faith Moses. This is quite interesting. By faith Moses, when he was born... That's pretty interesting to have that kind of faith when you're born. Well, it's actually talking about his parents. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. The Greek word that's used here literally means a child of the city. When they looked on the face of that little child, knowing that God had promised Abraham in Genesis 15 that he would raise up a deliverer for his people in 400 years, and they looked on the face of that child and they said, this is him. This is a child of the city that God is building. And it says that when they looked on the face of that child and saw that he was beautiful, they were not afraid of the king's command. Here's the lesson I'd like us to get out of this. Each and every one of us can begin a heritage of faith for someone else. Moses' parents took a step of faith that put their lives in danger because they believed in a God they could not see, and they believed that He would be victorious in delivering that nation, and they risked their lives. That's a heritage of faith. Parents need to give it to their children Friends need to rub it off on friends. Sometimes it's the children that actually give it to their parents. But there must be a heritage of faith that is passed from one to the next to the next, from one church to the next. Your job here is not just to be a local church. Your job here is to be a church that challenges every other local church in the area and to be a church that has a voice and an impact that's like a stone thrown in a pool of water that sends ripples out across this country. God didn't call any single one of us for a little purpose. He called each and every one of us to have an impact on history and to change the world in which we live. It began with His parents, and then notice, that was step one. Step two, we have faith's heritage in verse 24, faith's identity. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, this refers to the stage of maturity, which we know from Egypt, uh, or from the book of Exodus, was the age of 40 years. By faith, Moses, when he became mature, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Identity. He identified himself. He identified with the children of Israel. He refused to identify as something he was not. Today's all about identity, right? I identify as a bookcase. <laughs> you know, here I am at almost 73 years old. I identify as 20. And so we move into this delusional age where there is no truth. I just saw a thing today where a guy was committing a crime and someone came out and did what they should have done and they shot him dead. One of the people that was standing by said, you shouldn't deal with people like that because crime is only a construct that really doesn't relate to reality. Tell that to the people who are the victims. Tell that to the children without parents. Tell it to the people who are suffering as the crime is imposed on them. Moses identified with the children of God. Notice then as we move on in verse 25, we have faith sacrifice. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He was in line to be the next Pharaoh. He was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could have taken the easy path and just said, when I become Pharaoh, I'll release the children of Israel and they can go their way. But you see, no matter how great the victory may appear, if it's not the plan of God for you, it's not a victory, it's a defeat. Because God's victories cost something. And when Jesus urged His followers to take up the cross and follow Him, He said, it's going to demand that you deny yourself. He said in Luke 9:23 if any man any woman any child will come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow after and there's always a price that has to be paid. Moses was willing to pay that price and he paid the sacrifice. Notice the fourth step in verse 26 Moses priority It says, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Can you imagine living your whole life for something that you'll never see in this world? That's what Moses did. Moses believed what we're told in verse 6, that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. No matter who you are, no matter what your station in life, no matter what your disadvantages, if you're a child of God, you have been given the privilege and the opportunity in whatever time remains to you on this planet to seek the face of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Word of God and to be transformed from that glory to a reflected glory so that you can go out into the world and make a difference. But we have to have a priority. And his priority was the riches of God's grace offered by faith. Notice verse 27. To have this kind of stamina and diligence, it takes a vision. In verse 27, we have the vision of faith. By faith he forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king. You know, we have political prisoners now in the United States of America. We have people who wanted to protest one of the greatest crimes in history, a fraudulent election that has been proved beyond a shadow of a doubt in so many different ways, and there's not a court in the land that'll take it on. And all those people did was go to show their support and voice their position. And they've been locked in prison for a year and a half and they're being horribly abused. Some are being starved. Some have been beaten so badly, one of them lost an eye and teeth because of the beating that they got. I thought we didn't have political prisoners. I grew up knowing that that's the kind of thing they do in Russia. If you speak out against the regime, you go to a prison camp, a gulag up in Siberia. I've been in China. I know how fearful those people are to even utter a difference of opinion from the party because it can end up ruining their entire life. Now it's right here in our own country, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And my heart breaks that we've fallen this far. But I will tell you one thing. Some of those people are believers in Jesus Christ. And some of those people realize that the reason they're there is because they're engaged in a spiritual battle and they are trying to get the word out, even as some of us are trying to get the word into them, sending them scriptures, sending them verses, sending them encouragement because they realize what this is all about. It's not about political issues. It's about a spiritual war that is raging and has raged from the beginning of time. Moses had a vision. He did not fear the wrath of the king, it says, because he endured as one who sees him who is invisible. Paul says, though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being strengthened day by day. Listen carefully. While we look not at the things that are visible, but at the things that are invisible. Because the things that are visible are passing away, and the things that are invisible are eternal. And my friends, I hope you and I can get that vision That we can look on the face of Jesus Christ in the reality as it's displayed for us in the words of Scripture, because it'll change our lives. I want you to notice as we move on in verse 28, the sixth step is faith's obedience. It tells us by faith, He kept the Passover. When God spoke to Moses and said, I'm going to bring the tenth plague on Egypt, we've had nine plagues now. This is the pestilence and fever that the prophet Habakkuk saw as God walked through the land, and he saw the plagues that were striking Egypt, and each of those plagues was a blow at the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. I think they worship something like 80 gods. We have more than that in America We call them homes, we call them bank accounts, we call them possessions, cars. We have our own idols. God told Moses, I'm going to strike the firstborn, and I want you to do something for me. I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to slaughter that lamb. And I want you to take a branch of hyssop and dip it in the blood. And I want you to strike the little and the doorposts. And the word to strike indicates they didn't put a dot as you often see. It was a strike with blood through the lintel. And then another strike with the blood through the doorposts. And on the door was a cross in blood. And the death angel moved through the land of Egypt. And when he saw the blood on the doorpost, all those inside were safe. You know, one of the greatest evidences of the corruption of the soul of Judas Iscariot is that he sat in the upper room with the king of kings and the lord of lords, and the lord washed his feet, showing his humility and his willingness to cleanse even the most vile. And then what did he do? He got up and went out the doors. Only those who stayed behind the door were safe on Passover night. And he went out and he took his 30 pieces of silver, and he betrayed the king of glory. And then later his conscience was smitten, and he went back and threw the money at the feet of the priests, and he went out and hung himself. He was not beyond the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he placed himself beyond the reach of God's mercy and God's grace. Face obedience. Moses did what God commanded. And notice that it says, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Could I suggest to you that there is judgment coming on this country? And we need to make sure that we are under the blood. And it's an easy thing to say, I'm under the blood of Christ. I've trusted Jesus Christ. As my Savior, I know that I have eternal life. I know that God has promised me a home in heaven. I think of the words of our Lord when He said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. And you know what? You can believe all of that. And I hope you do. And if you believe all of that, you are His child. And you have entered into what Selah, three times in the passage, urges us to do, to enter into His rest. But you've only entered into the first one. That's a little tidbit from next class. Have you entered the second one? Are you behind the door? Are you really... Celebrating the Passover is the real meaning of what it's all about a reality in your soul. Or have you stepped outside the door? Because in times of historical crisis, to be out of the will of God, to be in rebellion against His Word, to be in a place where He doesn't want you to be, is deadly. I know there are people all across this country... They call them preppers. They're stockpiling food because we're probably going to have food shortages. Probably will. They're stockpiling guns and ammo. They're stockpiling silver and gold. They're stockpiling everything. I want to tell you something. You stockpile everything without being under the blood of Jesus Christ, and all you've done is store things up for someone else. And Joseph taught us in the book of Genesis... That if you see a time of famine coming, it's a good idea to prepare. I'm not anti prepping, I'm just anti physical prepping without the spiritual. Because all that stuff can be taken from you in a moment of time. Can we stand on the battlefield of life with nothing but Christ in our soul? And his word on our mind, and be stripped of everything, and know that we can't be defeated. That, my friends, is a spiritual warrior, and that is spiritual victory before the battle even starts. The special forces used to have a saying your mind is your most dangerous weapon. In the spiritual realm, it's your soul. And it's where your soul is at that moment of time in relation to the plan and the purpose of God for your life. See, Moses went through the same journey Habakkuk went through, or I should put it the other way around. As Moses had gone before, so Habakkuk had to go through those stages later. You'll remember when God first called Moses and he met him at the burning bush and he said, I'm going to empower you with supernatural power. I want you to go down and deliver my people from Egypt. And what did God say? Right, got it. You picked the right man. I'm just the guy for the job. Is that what he said? He said, you got the wrong guy. I think you must be talking to somebody else. I am a nobody. I'm a shepherd in the middle of the wilderness. I can't speak. You know, people assume from that that Moses stuttered, but he didn't. We're told in Acts chapter 7 that Moses was a man who was mighty in word and indeed He was a great orator. If you read the books of Josephus and you read his record of Moses, he tells us in the historical account as it came down to him through tradition that Moses was not only a mighty warrior in the land of Egypt before the time of the Exodus came, but he was also an orator that people would come from miles around to hear him speak. All he was doing was making excuses. I'm not the guy. Choose someone else. God said, no, I don't make mistakes and I don't stutter. You're the guy that I want. And he made of Moses the man that he became. The last step of Moses is particularly interesting. And I hope that we all get this. Verse 29 By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. I love little things in God's Word. Little shifts, little changes that have such tremendous significance. Because we started by faith His parents and from their impact and their heritage, by faith, Moses. And so we read five times over, by faith, Moses, by faith, Moses, by faith, Moses, and come down to this verse, and it says, by faith, they. And who are the they? A nation of two and a half million men, women, and children. You see, what God starts very small in your soul and in my soul is designed to have an impact that changes the lives of others. And it's a reason, I think, why Longfellow, who was not only a poet, and he did know it, but he was also a believer in Jesus Christ, and he wrote the little poem... On the broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life. Be not dumb driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. We look at Hebrews chapter 11 and we see weak men and women, people that were just like us. Think of it, Samson is here. How many times did he fail? How many times did he get distracted? I mean, God could send that man on a mission and he'd say some cute thing in a skirt and his mind was already gone. And God would slap him down and pick him up and knock him down and pick him up until finally standing there completely defeated in chains, having his eyes put out. You know, the one moment that kept him from being a loser in the record of history to being a hero in the hall of faith, when he stood there with nothing, no strength, no long hair, no Nazarite vow, stripped of everything, including his dignity. And he said, God, hear me this one last time. Restore my strength and allow me to take vengeance on my enemies. And he stepped between those two pillars as a little five-year-old child led him to the place and he put his hands on those pillars and he began to push. And the Spirit of God did what he always does. He filled a humble soul. And I love the phrase at the end of the story. Go back to Judges and you can read it. He slew more in his death than he did in his life. You know why that's important? Because when he was born, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to his mother and told her the plan he had for this child. And the plan that he had and that he revealed to her and that was based on the Nazarite vow that Moses took, he shall begin to deliver his people from the Philistines. That was his mission in life. Have you ever thought how astounding the life of Samson was, that he was called by God to be a warrior against people who at that time were the most fierce and the most feared people on the planet, the Philistines? And doesn't it strike you as strange growing up knowing from the knee of his mother through the time of his growth that God has called you to deliver the children of Israel from the Philistines? And he never picked up a weapon. He didn't start practicing with the bow wasn't like David and, and learned to be an expert with a sling. He decided, if God wants to do this through me, he's going to do it through my bare hands. Can you begin to imagine the kind of faith that he had? And in spite of his weakness, in spite of his frailty, in spite of his so easy being distracted, God ended up doing exactly what he said he would do through him. You know what God asks of you and I? Humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty God. This is, remember, this is not me speaking. This is God talking to you right here, this moment, right where you are in life. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you at the proper time. My friend, that's the plan of God and the call of God on your life. And my prayer is that we can learn from the steps in the journey of Moses as we've been studying the steps in the journey of Habakkuk to come from that place where we accept insignificance and we become significant in the plan of God. And we refuse to bow to the God of this world and those who serve Him and we choose instead to stand Defiant with a holy defiance that comes from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Could I just remind you, God has a plan for your life. No one else can do what He wants to do through you. You don't have to be able, capable, skillful. As I said a moment ago, you just have to be humble. And if you lay yourself at the foot of the cross and in your helplessness, open your heart and your soul to the power that He alone can give, you're going to look back on your life. You're going to say, I can't believe what God has done for me and in me and through me. May God bless His Word to our lives, and let's start that journey of making decisions by faith and see what Christ will do in your life. I'm going to pray, and we're going to take just a moment to watch the greatest song that was ever written by a man who was a slave owner who then became a slave. And it'll come right after I pray, and if you would just watch it with me. They do this every year for me. I kind of take it as a personal gift. Join me as we watch it. Father, we commit ourselves to you. Humble us, deliver us from our sense of ego and self-sufficiency, and help us, Lord, to just lay ourselves at the foot of the cross and cry out to you, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and God, fill me by your spirit and with your word. Keep my eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him alone be all that I see as I continue to press on to your eternal kingdom, for we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.